You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. And so I, I want to invite you now, as is our custom, to do just that. Uh, we're going to open the Bible together, as is our custom, and we're going to open to the 10th Psalm. And so if you don't have a Bible, please make use of that paperback Bible in the tray in the chair in front of you. But even further, if you, if you, if you have a device, make your way to Psalm 10, and, uh, and we'll be picking up kind of our, our journey through the book of the Psalms. The, you'll find it in the very middle of the Bible, but don't be afraid of the table of contents. If this is one of the first times you've opened a Bible, uh, we believe that there is good news, there is encouragement, even even for the first time you open it as, as much as there is if this is the thousandth time you've opened a Bible. And so, so we're going to dive right into the 10th Psalm. And in the middle of the Bible, we have 150 of these Psalms. And uh, they are, in that sense, poems, songs, hymns that would, have been, uh, that would have been what gatherings of people of faith would have been singing and reciting. And so as a group of people, as a church, we've been walking through this and we're going to be in the 10th Psalm. I, it came to my attention, this will be, we have done, as, because we, we've kind of committed most of the summers to doing this, uh, I'll give you a couple reasons why we, we do that, and as you make your way to, the, uh, to Psalm 10, I'll, I'll uh, kind of catch you up on a couple things, but this, we have gone through 50 of the 150 Psalms as a church. Uh, so we're a third of the way through this, and, uh, and so the reason we do this is, is kind of like, uh, we, we've got a few different few different causes that we're we're charging into. One is that the New Testament, especially Jesus, quote the Psalms more than any other of the books of the Old Testament. As if to say, and we even see Jesus saying this to those those two people walking on the road to Emmaus, that uh, didn't you know that, that what I was here to accomplish is a fulfillment of the law and the prophets and even of the Psalms? The second reason we do this is because this is, in many ways, the language of faith. This is the language of the life of God. This is the language of, of as a people of God wanting to, to live in light of who God is and what he's done. This is how we do it. And so this serves as an example. This serves as a way to teach. Uh, after all, um, the most important things that you've probably learned, you learned through some sort of art you learn through some sort of illustration, and literally, it would have been through rhyme or through a song. For example, I have never, ever met a person who has learned their ABCs without the use of the song that rhymes, A, B, C, D, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, right? And, I, and again, I, I, it's an open casting call. If you learn this, the ABCs without a song, I would love to hear it. I'd just love to hear what a cold and lifeless education that was for you. <laughs> a, B, C, you better not be singing A, B, C, right? But we learn some of the most impactful things, and art is the way that it, it kind of creeps, not, to just, not just from intellectual knowledge, but it creeps down into our own soul and our own heart. It becomes a part of who we are. So I am, first of all, really grateful for all of the people over the last several weeks who have been preaching through the book of Psalms, and I, I want to just speak, man, this stirs up deep emotion in me. I got to spend the last several weeks on vacation, and I am so grateful to you for what this means. One, um, that we want more than anything else, the, the, that no one owns the pulpit in this church. The Bible does. And so one of the best things we can do on a regular basis is hear God's Word expounded upon from other people. And we want to celebrate that. We want to see more and more. I mean, the world needs more people to expound 
the truth of God's word, not less. And so we want to be a part of raising that up, and I thank you for being a part of that. Um, two, uh, I get to, uh, as I reflect on what it means for me to be, I, I'm going I'm to do my best here, to be a pastor for the next 20, 30 years. And so that means I, I need to rest. I need to take a break. I need to relax. Um, and that's for a couple of different reasons. One um, is I get to just enjoy the blessing that, that will last forever and ever, and that is church membership. That is that as members of the local church, I really believe this, we get to just experience the regular means of grace, of singing about God together. I know that's, it's absurd that we would come into a room and sing. Don't ever miss the fact that, that that doesn't happen, right? Other than big soccer matches, nobody does that. It's odd because of what God has done for us, but we also get to sit under the teaching of God's Word and be reminded of who God is and, and be encouraged by that. And that's, that's just a blessing I get to do, uh, and thank you for letting me do that. After all, uh, there will be no pastors when Jesus comes back, right? My, my job, I'm on a temporary assignment. I, there's, a po- there's a point where I will no longer be telling you about Jesus. A point will come where I'll just go like, there he is. And I'll be out of a job, and then I get to occupy the space that you've allowed me to occupy for the last few weeks, just to, to be someone following Jesus, enjoying the benefits and blessings of belonging to a family of, of believers. Um, and the last reason for uh, it's, it's a blessing that I get to rest from is that I know anyone uh, faces the temptation to find their identity in what they do. But there is something incredibly weird when I talk to pastors that we, we, we tend to be regular, I know this will blow your mind, we tempted to think that we are like like preaching is who we are. And I get to regularly be reminded that like, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't preach to any of you in the last few weeks, and God still loved me. And, and that, again, that may not seem like a big deal, uh, but maybe that's, maybe that's not something you wrestle with. Maybe like wrestling with finding your identity in what you do and, and, and being, gripped by what, what, being gripped by what happens when a lot of people are looking at you and listening to you. Maybe that doesn't bother you but it can creep into my own soul and rob me of joy. And so I want to say thank you for letting me rest. Thank you for letting me, uh, thank you for letting me be a part of this church. And, and so now I get to jump back in Psalm chapter 10. We'll see if I remember how to do this. This is, in the category of psalms, an imprecatory psalm. Now, we've gone through a psalm like this before last summer, uh, just a few chapters before. This is a, a, a psalm of imprecation. That's not a word that you and I use, but think of it as a malediction. That is a wishing of bad things, an invoking of curses. And many of the psalms are this. A full third of the psalms are a lament, that is a cry out to God in sadness or in some sort of discontentment or some sort of uh, unhappiness about the way things are, going to God with trouble. But, but in that category of lament are psalms like this where, where we are encouraged to and invited to express anger towards evil that is in the world. Now, I want to kind of propose this to you that an essential component in the life of faith is righteous anger toward evil. And so that might hit you in one of a couple places. One, if you're in the room and maybe you're just a particularly upbeat person, maybe you're just regularly encouraging and uplifting, first of all, I thank God for you. I'm grateful for you. But I want you to here in, in this psalm and in the others and in other parts of the Bible, a rebuke, a rebuke to you that you might have, in this sense, missed out on the righteous anger of God. You might in your own heart and life lack a righteous anger towards evil. And for you, the thing will be for you to look at the character of God and find in him a righteous anger against evil. 
But maybe if you're kind of on the other side of the spectrum, maybe the other second rough group is that you get angry really easily, right? You're, maybe you're with me on that, right? And so the rebuke for you isn't that you ought, right, right, ought to feel anger more than you should. I know some of you are like, oh, sweet. And, and if, that's you, if you're like, oh, yes, angry, in some sense, you ought to hear this rebuke because you also have likely missed out on the righteous anger of God. And the things you are more likely angry about are not the character of God that is not reflected in the world, but you're usually angry about stuff that just bothers you. And it usually happens at a higher rate when you've been deprived of things like food, right? And notice that is not a righteous anger against evil. That's an unrighteous anger because we feel slighted. And so this may seem strange because maybe you haven't encountered this in the Scripture, or maybe you have uh, been raised in a, in a community of, of, or some kind of a, a tradition of the church where this is often ignored, and you've been told maybe that this isn't a component of this. But I, I want to encourage you, an essential, an essential component in the life of faith is righteous anger toward evil. I'll say more about that in just a moment. But I want to invite you in many ways to let God's Word speak to you and get you good and angry. So beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the greedy one, oh, excuse me, <laughs> that bears repeating. The greedy one for gain renounces, curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God is forgotten. He's in his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O oh God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see. For you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire, 
of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Songs of Payback. It's quite a genre. As the Psalms introduce us to the language of faith, maybe you might ask, like, when when we need this song? Think, whenever you desire payback. And it's a genre you might be more familiar with than you realize, depending on, and even just the last few decades, maybe, maybe for you, the, the songs that resonate in your own heart are like, Credence Clearwater Revival, Fortunate One, right? Written in the face of people who were taking their wealth and privilege and getting multiple deferments from serving in the Vietnam War. And as a result, many people who didn't have the money or, or capability or means served faithfully. John Fogarty comes, comes along and says, like, I'm not a fortunate one. I'm no senator's son. Maybe a couple... Decades later, maybe, uh, maybe the song of vengeance or retribution or reprisal, in this case payback, is 9 to 5 by Dolly Parton, written about the difficulty of, frankly, work under the sun in general, but more specifically about the mistreatment of people who work and who don't have the means or voice or wealth to stand up for mistreatment, especially mistreatment of women in the workplace. Or maybe for me, example, a couple decades even later, it's from the late 80s or the early 90s, voices like Public Enemy, NWA, or Rage Against the Machine. And you hear the call to fight the power as a result of experiencing police brutality in neighborhoods that were powerless to stop it. I know that's ironic. I love people like Rage Against the Machine. An anti-authoritarian sentiment, and don't Don't forget the irony is not lost on me that God has called me into something of a position of authority. I wake up with that every day. But they speak to the feelings of rage against mistreatment, payback against individuals who have taken advantage of those who are powerless to stop it. Or more recently, maybe it's Carrie Underwood, payback against someone who was unfaithful to her in which she desires to dig her keys into the side of his pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive and carve her name into his leather seats. Holy smokes, Carrie. (laughs) But the feeling of loss, of being mistreated, and in this case, I just gave you a few examples across the last few decades, whether it's political or whether it's social or even, like Carrie would say, it's relational, the feeling of wanting there to be some sort of repayment for wrong that's done in the world is natural and actually good. To desire payback against individuals who have taken advantage of those who are powerless to stop it. Psalm 10 is a song like that. It's a cry out to God for payback. Did you hear the language? Break the arms of the wicked. I mean, that's the hard part about many of the payback songs. Most of them I can't quote to you because they're inappropriate. Because that's the kind of emotion, those are the kinds of words that the desire for payback brings to the surface. It's a cry out to God for payback towards individuals who have taken advantage of people who are powerless to stop it. 
Now we'll come back to those songs in a minute. But the background of this song is connected to Psalm chapter 9. Now a couple of years ago we actually went through Psalm chapter 9, but you'll notice that Psalm 9 is attributed to David and Psalm 10 is kind of left blank. Well, this is one of the several psalms, I believe there's somewhere like seven, eight, or nine, depending how you count them, that are acrostic. Psalm 119 was one of them where we were, uh, that we went through last summer, a, a psalm devoted, a long psalm, right? The, think of it, it's like the, the November rain, uh, right? It's the free bird of the psalms. It's long, and it's about God's Word, and it's written in an acrostic. Each section starts with a, a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and Psalm 119, it's the most visible, it's actually in there. But Psalm 9 and 10 are actually intricately connected. They are also an acrostic. The Hebrew alphabet sets the first letter of each phrase or each section from chapter 9 or Psalm 9 to Psalm 10. And yet, we, we don't really know, frankly, whether these are directly connected or they're meant to simply kind of hold in tension a paradox. Because if you read through, and I commend that to you this week, if you read through Psalm 9, it's about thanksgiving, about how good God has been and how... How the, the people of faith will respond in praise to how good God has been. And then immediately, quite literally, not skipping a letter, picking up in the next letter in verse 1, a cry out to God, why? Why do you stand far away? Why are you hiding yourself from the trouble? And so they're directly connected. And I point that out for at least you to begin to consider, while we may not know how connected or disconnected they really are, the language that's used in 9 and 10 are very similar. Now that's important for our purpose today because we want the Psalms to begin to teach us the language of faith. They teach us how to talk about things. They, they give us pictures for understanding the character of God and the nature of the world. And so this phrase like times of trouble, you'll see in chapter 9, the wicked is a phrase that's used over and over and over again in both 9 and 10. That, that word for seeking out is, is found in chapter 9, or the ninth psalm. The claim that God is forgotten is also in Psalm 9. The call for God to rise up is in the 19th verse of Psalm 9, as well as in the 12th verse of the psalm we just read. And then a cry that the Lord is king is in Psalm 9 and 10. A call to the nations, as well as a picture of vindication from God as judge. They're all throughout these two psalms. So, this psalm and the one before teaches us how to experience the life of faith, including when things don't work out for us. We experience and express righteous anger against the enemies of God because God is perfectly just and will defeat those enemies. We are invited, even encouraged by this psalm, in, in this sense modeled by this psalm, to cry out in anger against the evil that we see in the world. So, you'll see kind of four sections. The very first verse makes up kind of the, the introduction, a cry, and, and even, get this, an accusation towards God, a complaint against God. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The, the psalmist here is feeling as though God has abandoned him, that God has abandoned his people, so much so that he accuses God of intentionally keeping at a distance, hiding, as if to say that instead of dealing with the injustice, God is somehow like cowering. Now, 
I want to draw your attention to a few things we learn, even in these two questions. But, but like most good songs, sometimes the way that they're best experienced isn't, isn't by breaking them down, right? Like beauty and art is, is best beheld by just simply absorbing it. Uh, it'd be like if I, you know, if I gave your, if we, we talked about your favorite song and I just started to like mechanically break it down. Well, here's what key it's in. Here's the time signature, this many beats per minute. Like, that isn't a way to enjoy a song. Any more than if I brought up the, the Mona Lisa and put it on the screen and then began to like, well, if you'll notice the use of color, there's a sense in which good art illustrates its point by simply receiving it. And so maybe one of the best ways to walk through similar song or psalms similar to this is by reading these first few words and ask, asking a question. Do you know what that feels like? The psalmist cries out, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Have you ever been there? Have you ever seen or experienced something awful that it made you wonder if there was a God and if there was a God, whether or not that God cares or sees you? In many ways, it's a a false accusation, though. After all, he says that God is somehow standing far away. In many ways, that's, that's an unhelpful view of the nature of God. God is omnipresent, right? When you think about the, the, these, these immutable characteristics of God and, and His omnipresence, God is all present everywhere. So in that sense, think about how some of these words aren't really helpful, is that God can't go anywhere, right? God can't travel. There's an irony there that, that God is present always and everywhere, and so even for the psalmist to accuse God of something is against, it kind of impugns God's character in the same way that God can't actually learn anything. There's nothing God doesn't already know. And yet God has inspired this psalm to complain against him, even falsely. Here's what I'll tell you. It's as if God knows that sometimes we need to get dumb things off our chest. And he's gracious and happy to help And that's a grace I can't even comprehend, that God not only tolerates a small view of him, but he actually encourages us to own it. After all, we see this elsewhere. In many ways, you see this this psalm is kind of a, a beautiful picture of the truth of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 55, where God speaks through Isaiah to the people, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. God is not surprised when we say things that don't add up with his thoughts. And God is not shocked when we do things that do not match up with his character or his own behavior. It's as if God says, it's okay if you think dumb or small things about me. I'll meet you there. And this psalm teaches us how to have a heart, in this case, a broken heart, an angry heart, for the injustice and suffering in the world, especially a heart for those who on a regular basis it's easy for us to overlook. And it's like, if you see at the end there, it's like once he gets everything off his chest, the Lord begins to assure him. So I want to encourage you in these first provocative, these are raw questions, are they not? They are raw, they're they're painful. Even if we wouldn't want to admit these things These kinds of beliefs exist in the depths of our own heart. 
and experiencing awful things, pain and loss in our own lives or seeing it in the lives of others brings these doubts and questions to the surface. What I want to encourage you is that God already knows it. And God invites you and I to admit what God already knows. After all, there's no point in denying what we really feel and what we really believe. And what we find, at least in this psalm, is that once you get everything off your chest to God, then comes the assurance. The Lord is king. The Lord hears the desires of the afflicted. Not just the words, but even the desires. And they will strengthen, and God will strengthen their heart. So think of what this first little verse teaches us. We are invited and encouraged to cry out to God with our complaints. We are encouraged to speak out to God in openness and rawness. And, and this is bizarre. He even welcomes false accusations. After all, if our ways and God's ways don't match up, if our thoughts and God's match don't perfectly align, then, then almost everything we see and believe about God is going to be somehow woefully insufficient. And the gap between what we know and about God based on what he's revealed to us and, and who God really is is a gap that's only filled by grace. A grace that we sang about a moment ago that one day we'll just see it. And so we're invited and even encouraged to cry out to God with our complaints. And so let me interject here aside. What about maybe your own objections to anger? Maybe, maybe you're kind of from a thought that maybe happiness is the, the greatest and most, is like the highly exalted value in your own family, in your own life, in your own story. But, but I, I want to to point out here that crying out to God and complaining against evil is actually something that's consistent with the very heart of God. Now, our Western and especially American sensibilities don't like that, right? I don't want a, I don't want a God that's angry. I don't, want a, I don't want a God that's wrathful. I want a God that's loving. And in in saying those two things, pitting them against one another, I believe we've misunderstood the both of them because anger is a, direct, is, a, is a direct result of love. After all, you have real and justified anger when the thing that you love is threatened. In fact, I, I, I would push this against you. If the thing that you love is threatened or harmed and you are not angry, you don't actually love it. And that actually reflects the heart of God. Now, this is tough because our anger is unrighteous, right? Our anger is a human anger. It's limited in scope. It's without the, the omnipresence and omniscience of God and, and the omnibenevolence of God. But notice, this is how God is described in the Bible. The 103rd Psalm tells us all of this at once, that the Lord is merciful and gracious, never gets angry? No. Slow to anger. Does that make him not loving? No. He's actually abounding in steadfast love. Do you hear all that together? Now, in many ways, all of these attributes of God qualify and, and help one another. They complete our view of God. But I want to commend to you the thought that a righteous anger actually reflects the heart of God and encourage you. He welcomes these complaints. He's not unaware. And I want you to know that that is an encouraging thing for you and I to know and to hold tightly to. That awful thing that was done to you, 
God knows. In fact, what kind of a loving God would there be if you're like, hey, God, did you not see this awful thing that's happened? And God's like, well, I didn't see anything. And so here we are encouraged in a life of faith to take our complaints to God. And he's better than we are, right? If you falsely accuse me, oh my goodness, I become indignant. If I'm misunderstood, oh my goodness. But isn't this a beautiful picture of a loving and gracious God who says, fine, say what you want. I can handle this. I have grace sufficient for this. And for the next, from verse 2 to verse 11, this next section, we, we see a description of the wickedness upon which these questions or accusations against God are based. Now, notice, just, just as, as you kind of reflect on these, the same question still stands. Like, have you ever seen this? Right? Have you ever felt that way? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Have you ever seen someone take advantage of someone who couldn't defend themselves? If you've ever seen a bully in middle school, the answer is yes, which I take to mean you are human. The wicked boasting of wicked desires and getting away with it. A pride that that the wicked seems to function as if there is no God, there is no retribution, that you can get away with doing whatever you want. Now notice the language here. There are different, different psalms that speak of this differently, but this psalm speaks of it with a singular person in mind. Did you hear all the he's or his or himself? The wicked, as the wicked one. And then, and then you see after that second verse, it becomes like a single person. The wicked and the one greedy for gain and the pride of his face, his thoughts, right? His ways. He says, verse 7, his mouth is filled. Verse 8, he sits, his eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. Verse 9, he lurks, he lurks again, he seizes, the helpless are crushed, sinks down, and fall by his might he says in his heart. So almost all of these verses are thinking of a person, a singular entity. We're meant to think of someone who has a great deal of power and is wielding that power and that influence, whatever the case may be. In this case, it might actually be wealth because the the people that he speaks of are the poor who are not able to stop it. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever been taken advantage of? Have you ever seen someone else taken advantage of? Because in this, we see a description of wickedness. Now, again, I believe this is a helpful, like the ABCs, this is a helpful and poetic illustration of the language you and I ought to be using in the life of faith. We ought to be willing to see what is wicked and know that it is an offense to God. You are allowed and even invited to be upset upset with God for not fixing it yet. You're allowed to cry out about this. And he cries out a description of this wickedness. An individual who is arrogant, boastful, prideful, God-denying in his actions, confident in himself, prosperous even in that evil, but blasphemous, deceitful, and even cruel. Have you ever seen any of those things? Then, friend, cry out to God. And I will encourage you with something here. As angry as you might be about those things, you are nowhere near as angry as God is. Have you seen this kind of brokenness in the world? Now, in this case, it's personified. It's a single person who's perpetrating some sort of offense against a group of people who are helpless to stop it. But have you seen the brokenness in the world? Have you seen Alzheimer's up close? Have you seen cancer up close? 
Have you seen domestic abuse? Have you seen human trafficking? Have you seen infertility? Have you seen the coldness that human beings are capable against one another? Friend, cry out to God. In many ways, God in His perfection and righteousness is waiting for you and me to see what He has sensed and known and seen all along. In many ways, that cry out to God for help and deliverance against what we see in the world is something that God does not push back. But in many ways, God might even just say, I mean, He's more gracious than this, but like, it's kind of like, I've been trying to tell you this. I've been waiting that your heart might be formed to, to be the shape of my own heart to where you would see this and no longer be okay with it. Because after all, if you have any love in your heart, you have righteous anger when the thing that you love is threatened. And so we're encouraged to have righteous anger when individuals take advantage of those who are powerless to stop it. We're encouraged to because it actually reflects the heart of God. Now, if that still seems far-fetched, I want to invite you, Ephesians chapter 4, a passage of Scripture that is usually quoted from verse 32 that tells us to be kind and loving and caring to one another, is preceded in that section by this command, to be angry and yet to not sin in that anger. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, right? It's not saying never be angry, but it's as if to say, if you're going to live in this world, you are going to see things that if your heart is shaped by the very heart of God, you will be angry about. Otherwise, there's another way to be angry, which I, I told you is an equal rebuke here, which, as it says in verse 27, is an opportunity for the devil. And so, we are encouraged to have a righteous anger when we see people being harmed, even if it's us. We're encouraged to cry out to God in this with openness and rawness, knowing that God will respond. Just listen to the language that's used in verse 2 through verse 11 and think about how you and I often think of evil, evil that exists in our own heart, evil that exists in the hearts of the people we love around us, and then evil that exists in the hearts of the wicked. And it gives us a really beautiful picture of, of evil. I mean, that's ironic, a beautiful picture. Well, it, it paints a, a vivid and, like, this is how we talk about evil. So often we talk about evil like, I didn't like that, or that was, that was unfair. But notice how it, talk, it talks about a depth of arrogance, a wickedness that exists. Did you, did you hear in verse 3? At the depths of the soul. So, friend, be invited by this psalm to talk about wickedness in a way that is at a soul level. The second thing you see here is that it speaks of a functional, you might have heard us talk about this before, but a functional atheism. Now notice he never comes out and says there is no God, but notice that in many ways that kind of intellectual atheism, which in many ways requires an act of faith as it is, right? Because after all, it, it, it's, it's impossible to, to defend or make a, a sound defense for the existence of God by reasonable means because the existence of God is beyond reason and human rationality. But on the other hand, maybe if you're, a, in this case, if you're in this room and you're a more of an intellectual atheist, it's also just as impossible to disprove by rational means the existence of God. And both kind of need a little leap of faith. But he says that in many ways, an intellectual atheism isn't near as dangerous as what we find here, which is a functional atheism. Now, this hurts hard for me because I, I just finished preaching uh, through the Sermon on the Mount, 
which is all about a kind of a hypocrisy that can exist in religiosity. And so what he describes here is the way that this person is functioning as if they have no God is what's really devastating. They may not say it, but ultimately, they are acting as though there is no God. So again, that's the kind of language that you and I are invited to use. When we think about evil, when we think about mistreatment, when we think about things that are unfair, there are ways that the world might quantify it, but the psalmist here gives us a language to more poetically see the beauty, I, I believe, of the grace of God from the backdrop of the injustice that's in the world. He lurks, he stealthily is watching for the helpless. He's like a lion. That's a language that's picked up in the New Testament as well. He lurks to seize the poor, and he seizes the poor when he draws them into this net. And he says in his heart, God's forgotten. God's never going to see this. So again, in a life of faith, we're invited to consider the possibility that God sees and knows all. And one of the most dangerous and destructive places you can be is when you deny that, when you act as though that's not true. And this is the complaint that the psalmist has against him. Then in verse 12, things turn. Look at verse 12 with me. He says, turns into the imperative, in many ways, commands God. If we're invited also to call out to God when we see things that are broken, he cries out to God, God, arise, as if to say, get up, lift up your hand. Now, that language here is about, uh, throughout the entirety of the Old Testament and the New at times is the language of the hand and the right arm is the, is the picture of the majesty or might, or in this case, power and authority of God. Hence, for example, when in verse 15 he says, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer, he's not literally hoping that maybe like some arms would get snapped by this high-ranking official, although maybe he, he is, right? But it's a picture as if to say, God, come in and render this person who is abusing their power, render them powerless. Make a public display of how weak and impotent they now are in light of who you are. Arise, O Lord, Lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. He kind of weaves back into a, a complaint. Why, God? Why does the wicked renounce God? And then say in his heart, you do not call to account. And then a powerful statement of faith and assurance. But you do see. But you do see. Notice what we see in verses 12 through 15, that ultimately we turn to God for justice. Now, up to this point, I've, I've kind of elaborated upon this, this poetic picture of how we experience evil and oppression in the world and how we often see it. And I bet up to this point, just like Carrie Underwood and, and, and just like NWA and just, right, just, like, uh, just like the Credence Clearwater Revival and, and anyone else that, you know, your favorite angry revenge song, Alanis Morissette comes to mind, right? Right? The one thing all of those cries out for justice and payback have in common is that none of them cry out to God. They do a good job illustrating what evil there is in the world, but they don't turn to God. And ultimately, we find our hope and refuge in the justice of God. Because after all, you have to admit that even the best, right, even the best effort at justice in the hands of human beings is an approximation. It doesn't really fix it. Right? Even if a victim of murder experiences, right, that family experiences the justice 
of someone being put to death who was the murderer, it still doesn't put back that person's life, does it? And so at best, and it's an approximation of justice. But ironically, even executing a murderer leaves the world with two less people. It leaves you wanting. And friend, that is not an accident because ultimately we look to God for justice. I want to ask you, what do you do in the face of injustice? What do you do when you're treated unfairly? What do you do when you see people who are treated unfairly around you? And what we found here is, one, we're called to articulate it, to speak it, but, but two, we're, we're to do that humbly calling out to God, trusting that He sees and He knows, and His, approxim- like His justice is better than our approximation of justice. We call out to God. We have a, a confidence and trust God with justice. And this is the kind of hope with which we face difficulty. Now, I ask that question again. Where do you turn when things don't go your way? What do you do with the things that are broken in the world? Now, my concern here as a pastor, I just want to see your souls thrive is that more often than not, people up to this point are pretty good at seeing what's broken and ranting about what is unfair. They rarely are calling out to God and trusting Him to make amends. More often than not, it's not the justice of God that we want, but it's the vengeance of humanity. And that just simply gets piled on the next layer. My concern then as a pastor is often people look to things that make promises that God alone can fulfill. Where do you look in injustice? Where do you turn? Do you look to your political party? Is that what you believe will really fix it? Is that the problem? Is that the solution to the real problem in the world? Do you look to someone to rant about, like to, to rant to someone about the thing you see? Is that, is that what's going to fix it or alleviate the suffering in the world? And friend, I just want you to know, as, a, as someone who cares about your soul, when you look to other things for justice, you will always get more injustice. And in the life of faith, this doesn't shock us. Right? It just doesn't shock us. Now, that's particularly important uh, because we're in an election year, and we're seems like we're sprinting towards a recession, so it's Hey, we got, as Christians, glorifying Jesus in the next years or two, it's going to be a real challenge. So I want to prepare you for that. And I want to prepare you in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of like difficulty or, 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 or tension, a lot of things or people are going to promise you thing that, things that God alone can deliver. So enjoy them for what they are, right? Advocate for the unjust. But here's what I, I've told you this before, and I say this every election year. If you only like your political party's view of justice, you don't like justice, you like your political party. Friend, your political party, your camp, your team did not invent justice, and that's a good thing. Our God who is righteous is the author of justice. Our God sees the depths of wickedness and evil in ways that you and I never will. And that for us is a comfort. So that we can, as best we can, advocate for the thriving of humanity in the world. But know that in the end, we cannot promise or deliver what God alone can. So friend, advocate for the poor. Advocate for 
injustice. But the minute you're like, well, but what about this other thing? You are not reflecting the heart of God. God sees all of that injustice and brokenness and goes like, you're right. It's worse than you think. You're right. It's worse than you think. So friend, don't, don't be duped. Don't be duped by cheap imitations of justice. God sees and knows. And this changes the way that you and I experience the world and the suffering in it. Because when ultimately, when we look to God for justice, then we can trust that God will absorb payback himself or he will pour it onto evil. Verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. Did you hear what's going to happen? Those who oppose him, in this, in this sense personified by the nations, what's going to happen to them? They'll be obliterated. They'll perish from the land. Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. Oh, isn't that good news? Oh, that's such good news, isn't it? Oh, you're going to strengthen my heart, God. You're going to incline your ear to me to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. What a phrase. That, that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Have you longed for that recently? Have you longed? I mean, did, did your heart not cry out for that? In the news of, after the, like, just the, the barrage of news of mass shootings? Isn't there something in you that says, God, I can't wait till you come and you make these kinds of awful things no more. No more. We can trust God. We can trust that God will either absorb payback himself, he will take it onto himself, or he will pour it onto the evildoers. And so these are principles for us to take from this. One, we don't have a perfect view of evil. Right? This psalm in many ways illustrates it, doesn't it? In many ways, it's, an, it's kind of a hyperbole, right? It's kind of an exaggeration. It's as if to say that this person is, is engaged in all of these awful things, that this person is saying these things in, this wicked person is using their power and saying these wicked things in their heart. We don't really know that that's true. And yet, we're invited to, to be okay with that language, to humbly know that we can do our best to approximate what we sense as evil, but in the end, we don't have a perfect view of evil. God alone is the one who sees Verse 14, you are the one who sees. God alone is the one who hears. That is both the desires of the afflicted and the desires of the hearts of those who've been mistreated. Two, God is not obligated to bend to our cries or our view of evil. <laughs> this is the hard part. God is not obligated to do what you and I say. And so in many ways, you be open to the possibility that there, like we saw this in, a, in one of the other imprecatory psalms against someone who's been slandered, right? Anyone's ever misspoken against you, right? God is not obligated to hear our calls for vengeance, right? You're invited to say, God, I hope you destroy that person. But no, in the end, God's going to do whatever God wants, right? And, and thankfully for many of us, God does whatever he wants, not what we want. Because we need to be open to the possibility that there might be someone in your life and in your past and your story who's praying this prayer against you. It is it's perfectly likely that every single one of us knows at least one person who's written this psalm out and your name was in it. Break the arms, right? And so when I say we can trust God with vengeance and we can trust God with justice, that also means that we can trust that 
He will relent. He will show mercy. Three, you can trust God with the existence of evil. You actually can trust God with the existence of evil. You can trust him, and here's how we know. All the righteous anger of God towards sin and sinners was absorbed by Jesus for all those who take refuge in him. And so thus, we have a simultaneous longing for justice and restoration that we look to God alone to provide, and also we have an experience of peace because of what God has done in response to the cries of this psalmist and people like you and me. Don't be afraid of the wrath of God. Don't be afraid of the wrath of God because Jesus is our refuge against it. God's righteous wrath against sin that should have been poured out on you and me. Romans 5 says, Since therefore we now have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. And friends, you can run to God with all of your discontentment and all your anger about the world because you know how He will respond. And we can admit the fact there are some people likely praying this prayer against us because we know that God is both the just and the justifier. We not only pray that God would deal with the wickedness in the world, but we pray that He would deal with the wickedness that is in the depths of our own hearts. And we can trust these things. Practically speaking, when you know justice is in God's hands, it shapes the way you desire justice in, your own, in the world, but also in your own sphere. Right? For many of you, like, you can put down the gavel. Like, you can stop being the executioner for your family and friends. You can just stop and trust God. You can trust God with justice. You don't have to take vengeance into your own hands. Remember how we began that we experience and express righteous anger against the enemies of God because God is perfectly just and will defeat those enemies? Friend, I have encouragement for you. We express righteous anger against evil because in Christ, God has perfectly defeated our enemies. We get to see what the psalmist only dreamt about. Because after all, even if God had given him what he wanted and had publicly snapped the arms off of this oppressive dictator person, right? Even if that would have happened, how much time before the next oppressive dictator took, took over? I don't know if you notice they come in cycles. And so we get to receive what this, what this psalmist wishes he could have seen. We cry out, and, and maybe we want vengeance, and maybe we want revenge, and at best we might get an approximation for it. But, but don't, don't begin to like suppress the desires of your own heart. When, when you are wronged, when you have been mistreated, when you see awful things in the world, admit the fact that you want blood. In a moment here, we get to celebrate something Christians have celebrated we call it the Lord's Supper, communion. And in it, God comes to the people who cry out for blood and answers with his very self. Think about the accusations at the beginning. Why are you far away? Why have you hidden yourself? In many ways, the psalmist was on to something, wasn't he? We experience 
both the revelation and the hiddenness of God in Christ. When we see Christ on the cross bearing the brunt of sin for people who do not deserve it, in many ways you ought to think, like, that's not how you expect to see God? (laughs) On a, a crucified God? And yet that is how God chooses to reveal himself, so that you and I would know in the midst of distress and suffering and injustice that we are not abandoned and we are not left. And the righteous God of the universe, when we cry out to him for vengeance and for blood, steps in and offers his own. If you're in this room and maybe you're not angry about injustice, I hope it at least begins to spark your imagination for how you might be more open to seeing what's broken in you and in the world and reflect the heart of God better. Maybe if you're in this room and you have anger presently, I hope you're shaped by this psalm and the way that it sees evil and wickedness in the world and turns to God rather than other things. I hope this song begins to rebuke you for ignoring suffering in the world, but also for maybe ignoring what is good and righteous angry. I hope this song invites you and me to see what's broken in the world and get good and angry knowing, knowing that God satisfies those desires. In a moment here, we're going to be invited to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And for those of us who know the wickedness in the world and we demand a price to be paid for it, we find satisfaction at the table. So I'm going to ask that you would begin to prepare your own hearts and 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's letter to the church, he invites us to do just that. That, in fact, there was, at one time, this this church was gathering together and celebrating the Lord's Supper in a way that didn't reflect the good and sufficient sacrifice of Jesus. And so, as a result, they were taking it unworthily. And so, I want to invite you, even now, would you begin to to consider what, what might have to be true of you to be able to cry out to God for justice and to receive it in Christ? to cry out to God for forgiveness and receive it in Christ? What might it look like for you to turn to God and and to begin to experience Him offering His very self to you and to me? Let's pray together as we prepare to meet Him at a table. God, we thank You so much. We thank You so much that You have given us what we have not deserved. You have offered to us what we could not have rightly supplied on our own. Thank you that you have satisfied all the righteous demands of the law. Thank you that you have satisfied even your own righteous demands that we could never live up to. And thank you that we get to see all of it, every single bit of it at this table, where we're invited by you not to experience condemnation or wrath, but to experience welcome and to hear good news that all of the wrath that we deserved has been absorbed by the sufficient and perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Thank you that this promise is offered to you and to me. Might we receive it now in Jesus' name. Amen.